Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. But before we do that, Father Saunders is going to lead us in prayer, and then I'll give you a break and you can get Good. yourself together. Okay? Thank you. Please stand. Pray for all those in traffic. So anyway, so let's pray. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Heavenly Father, as we gather here this evening, we ask you to pour forth your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and truth, to enlighten our minds and open our hearts so that what we ponder this evening in the mysteries of faith will take root in our own hearts and be expressed through our witness to that faith. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Calling upon the prayers of our Blessed Mother, we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Father Saunders. Our speaker tonight, Father William Saunders, was ordained to the Holy Priesthood on May 12, 1984, and received a Master of Arts degree in Sacred Theology, summa cum laude, the same year. In 1992, Father Saunders received a Doctor of Philosophy in Education Administration from Catholic University of America. He has served as President and Dean of Notre Dame Graduate School of Christendom College and Pastor of Queen of Apostles Catholic Church in Alexandria, Virginia until the year 2000 when he was appointed as the Founding Pastor of Our Lady of Hope Catholic Church in Potomac Falls, Virginia. Yes, go ahead if you're from Our Lady of Hope. Yes, okay, thank you, thank you. Besides offering a number of great presentations at the Institute of Catholic Culture, he is also a member of the ICC Advisory Board. Please join me in welcoming Father William Saunders. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well, it's good to be with you despite the traffic. I'll tell you, traffic is crazy around here. I thought I was taking the back roads. No such luck, right? So first of all, just to highlight what Deacon Sabatino was saying, he is doing a marvelous work for the church. And I would hope that everyone here could contribute something. As a pastor, I know what it's like to raise money and pass the basket and so on. I am here as a Catholic priest and an educator to talk about evolution and what the church teaches. I am not a scientist. Now, my father had a PhD in biochemistry. My uncle is a physician and my mom was a surgical nurse. But I am not a scientist, although I have a high appreciation for scientists. Now, what we have to do is think about, first of all, what do we believe concerning creation? Now, we have two accounts here. So we're going to look, first of all, at Genesis. And Genesis provides us with a story about creation in chapters 1 and 2. Now, it is a story. Even St. Augustine, St. Jerome said that this is a story. It's not a science book. They knew that this wasn't supposed to be seven 24-hour periods of time, and we will talk about it. So it's a story to contain truth. 
Because after all, the people of Genesis, the people of the early church, they weren't scientists, they weren't astrophysicists, anthropologists, paleontologists, biologists, microbiologists, or any of that. That comes later. However, there's another story, though, that is taught as though it's even more truthful than the Bible, okay, more biblical than the Bible, and that is this theory of evolution, which was posited by Charles Darwin, 1859, Origin of the Species. Being an educator, you hear of how, especially in public school systems, the government school system, that it is like fact that evolution occurred and so on. So we're going to talk about that. But then we're going to talk about what the significance is. Because if you buy into one over the other, you're also buying into a system of life. Not just scientific, but how you live it. So let's begin with Genesis then. If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 1. And we're just going to go through a quick synopsis of what is the truth that is presented by this beautiful book. So again, St. Jerome, St. Augustine, the other church fathers knew this wasn't meant to be a science account. After all, they didn't have the scientific means, and also, after all, they weren't there. They admitted that. Secondly, they realized that this was a story to teach truths that were very important. And with that also, they recognized that in our belief, faith and reason work together. They are not hostile. As Catholics, we can always appreciate that. We've never simply been, you know, just Bible thumpers and exclude reason. No. We've never been just fundamentalists and exclude reason or been hostile to science. No, we've always seen how faith and reason, the beauty of our faith and the discoveries of science work together to really bring us to a closer understanding of what God has given to us. So there shouldn't be a hostility there. Now, with that, we have in chapter 1 this first story of creation. And it starts in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. Now, in the beginning, that's a very specific term. In the Greek, it's in RK, but it means when God, who is eternal, started. So time starts with creation. Before creation, there's no such thing as time. God is beyond time. God is infinite. So God is eternal, and God creates. So in the beginning, and it says that the heavens and the earth was a formless wasteland, and darkness covered the abyss. Now, if we go to the Hebrew, it is an expression here, which is tohu wa bohu which is just an expression, this idea of a formless wasteland, this idea of chaos and so on, this abyss. It's trying to capture nothingness, to use language to capture nothingness. So God is creating out of nothing. Important. And then it says that a mighty wind swept over the waters. Wind in the Greek is pneuma, spirit. So from a Trinitarian point of view, we have an inference to the Spirit of God, a life-giving Spirit. Then God said, let there be light. Said, bara, 
very particular verb. It's to create. It's only used for God in the Hebrew sense. Bara means to do something extraordinary, something that is truly awesome. It's something of God's divine action, nothing else. So it's a term that is only of God. So here we have God speaking, let there be light, and the creation starts to happen. But when we think, as a Trinitarian people, we have God the Father, the Spirit, and the Word of God, capital W Word, that efficacious, all-powerful Word. Remember later on, it is St. Paul who will write how all things were created through him, Christ. And we hear in the John's prologue of the Gospel that all things were created through the Word, capital W Word. Now, with that in mind, we now go through what we have as a seven-day order of creation. Six days of creation, one day of the Sabbath rest. Seven was a very important number. For the Jewish people, it was a number of perfection. Also, it was a number of the covenant. The Jews would use seven as like a verb if they were talking about a covenant. And remember, the covenant is in relationship to God and man, this eternal, this permanent bonding of life and love. But the Jews would use the idea of sevening a covenant. So I seven this with you, meaning that I'm making this covenant with you. It's a bonding of life and love. So here, God isn't removed from his creation, but rather God is creating, and there's this bond of life and love between God and that which is created. So seven, again, a number of perfection. And here we have this ongoing activity of God. Now, with that, we also find that the number day in Scripture, like in the Psalms, can mean an infinite amount of time. It says in the Psalms that one day in the mind of God is like a thousand years for us. Well, imagine. So the day isn't supposed to be 24-hour periods of time. It's meant to be God's time. It can be millions of years. It doesn't matter. And then it goes on, and we have something very logical taking place. Day one, God creates the light, separates the light from the darkness, and so on. And then we have that there's day two, that there's this dome, separates the water from the land. And then we have day three, that we have this basin of dry land, and then God starts making the different kinds of plants, and so on. And there's the fruit trees, and therefore he brings about the seeds with the fruit trees. Then the next day we start having the birds of the air, plants and things like that. Very orderly. It's logical. There's a design. There's a purpose. Everything's building on something else. No chaos. Okay? No haphazard kind of creation. Very orderly, very designed. And then on the sixth day, Oh, before I forget, at the end of each day, Genesis reads that God looked at what he created and he saw that it was very good. There's a goodness to the creation. But on the sixth day, we find in verse 27, God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What a beautiful verse that is. Because... 
here's this creation, and it is unfolding. Their design, there's the purpose. But then God makes us, man and woman, in his image and likeness. Nothing else is made in his image and likeness. So God gives each of us a soul. But there's also a great mystery here because God makes them male and female. They're both in his image and likeness, and yet we know they're different, that man and woman are different. They're different physically, they're different physiologically, and for those of you who are married, you well know you're different psychologically too, right? You think differently. So how do you get the best picture of God's image and likeness? Marriage. And that's why in verse 28 it says, God blessed them, saying, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. And then he says, God looked at everything he had made, and he found it very good. Evening came and morning followed the sixth day. Notice that after man is created, God says he found it very good. So not just good, like the rest of creation, very good. Now, if we went to the second story of creation in chapter 2 of Genesis, we have a little bit of a difference in that God creates, and then there's the creation of the man, Adam, and then there wasn't anything suitable to be his partner, so God casts Adam into a sleep, takes the rib from him, creates Eve, and there's the suitable partner, and bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, there's his partner, Eve. And then again, it speaks about marriage. But here, there's an original unity. And this is what Pope John Paul II said so beautifully, that between man and woman, there really is meant to be that original unity. And that completion, that fulfillment of each other comes in marriage. And in that marriage then, that husband and wife share a love that not only binds them together as husband and wife, they're bound to God. And with God, they can bring life into this world. They can make human beings really miraculous products of their love, children each one made in God's image and likeness. So we see something that is very beautiful here in Genesis. And again, these are truths, principles. It doesn't matter how many thousands of years it took. Sometimes the kids ask me at the grade school, well, what about dinosaurs? Well, dinosaurs aren't specifically mentioned, but we know they're dinosaurs. But God created the animals. So somewhere in this progress, we have dinosaurs. But there's a progress here. But the beauty is we're the ones that are made in God's image and likeness. Now with that, that's the brief overview of Genesis. Again, very beautiful creation account. It's not meant to be a science book. It's not meant to be some kind of a fundamentalist kind of you know, story, but rather it's a story that teaches us truths about this all-powerful, all-loving God who through his reason created, put purpose, order, design in this creation, and we're the ones made in his image and likeness. And we're the ones that have purpose and meaning. Now, with that in mind, let's think about evolution. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details about evolution. But first of all, 
evolution is a theory. Every time anthropologists or paleontologists find a new bone, the theory changes. I have stacks of articles about finding new fossils. What I learned as a kid has changed. But basically, evolution is this. And going from Charles Darwin, The Origin of Species, 1859, to add what we know today and so on, we would start off with the old Big Bang idea. That you have these gases and pow, boom, you have the bang. Well, God said, let there be light. I have no problem with that. And actually, it was a French priest in 1927, I believe, Father Lemaitre, who came up with the Big Bang Theory. A priest did. So if it's let there be light, fine. But then you have the creation, and eventually, somehow you have the planets, right? So we have our happy little Earth, our solar system, and so on. And I admit I'm making this very simplistic, but that's the way I have to do things. And eventually, on this planet Earth, we have our little slime pool, and so on. That's what they call it. And there's these little happy amino acids, which make proteins, which make cells. So eventually we have Mr. Happy Cell here, Happy Cell, and Happy Cells gather. And eventually we get some kind of a being. So let's say we have Mr. Fish involved. Mr. Fish eventually grows legs, jumps out of the water, right? And so we'll have Mr. Dog here and Cat and so on and Ape. And eventually we get to us. And the key points of evolution are mutation, because all of this, and I don't mean to be cynical or sarcastic or anything, because scientists would say this is millions and millions and millions of years and so on. But the point is that it all goes back to this mess to begin with. But it's based on mutation. It is based on chaos and chance. Okay? It's all random chance. Is what happens. And it is based on natural selection. And with natural selection comes selection of the fittest. Okay. So this is exactly what terminology Darwin used. Selection of the fittest. So we have these mutations and eventually, boom, 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 those mutations that are the fittest, that are able to survive, they continue on, further mutations and so on, and eventually we come to our little selves here. Now, big difference. As I mentioned, every time these folks find a new fossil, this changes. For instance, a couple of years ago, I was in Great Britain. And in London, at the Museum of Natural History, they had this fascinating chart about all kinds of beings. So everything going from... Ramidus, Amenius, Africanus, and so on. All these little forerunners to us. And eventually we get to Homo sapiens. Now, what's sort of interesting is, quite frankly, that when I was a kid in the 1960s, Time Life books had this chart. Some of you may remember. And the chart started with this like little chimpanzee, funny-looking thing. And then it started, then it went to like Neanderthal man, Peking man, Java man, and so on. Like there was this logical progression, and eventually to us, modern man. Throw it out, because this chart, recent scientific thought, says, no, that's not the case. And what's interesting about this chart is, Homo sapiens really doesn't have 
an ancestry linked to, like Neanderthal man and so on. Rather interesting. They can't really trace us back to Mr. Monkey. They can't prove it. But then you have to think, too, that beyond that, that while we have these differences, that scientists will tell you that even Darwin would have to admit it, and he did in chapter 14 of Origin of the Species. How do you get in this idea of mutation, chaos, chance, natural selection, a creation where you have not just man, you have a woman. And they're made for each other. And they can have children. That just happens by chance. And it's not just man and woman human. It is male and female elephant, male and female dog, male and female cat, and we could go on and on and on. That just happens by chance. Darwin couldn't explain it. And Darwin couldn't explain life. How does life really come about? So he could go to the Galapagos Islands and so on and say, oh, well, these things seem to be related to each other. But he couldn't answer those basic questions. Where does life come from? How does this bring life? And secondly, how is it, if this is chance, that you actually get a man and a woman, and they're made for each other? That happens by chance, and it's not just for us. It's like I said, look at the animal world. So, with that in mind, let's think about what some scientists say. Because scientists are always very interesting in looking at this, right? Now, these are scientists like physicist Stanley Yockey. Speaks about this, what he calls, quote, the stunning details about the specificity of the universe in the first three minutes of what is the Big Bang Theory, and so on. Noting that this specificity is the hallmark. He said, in those cases, we see the same story, the story of one cosmic specificity leading to another, as staggeringly exact and specific quantitative terms. In the matter-antimatter states, for instance, ordinary matter particles must outdo antimatter particles, in the specifically exact ratio of one part in 10 billion to let subsequent physical interactions issue in process characteristic of our actually observed universe. Now, I don't know what that means, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> but he says, amazing as this is, he adds, at any stage, the slightest departure from the specificity as postulated would prevent the formation of galaxies and certainly the emergence of man. So that's the point. Just one slight deviation and it wouldn't happen. And so he says, for instance, one of its traits of our Earth's atmosphere is that the composition of the air we breathe. If its makeup included 17% oxygen, we could not breathe at all. If it were 25%, we would burn up. It is actually 21% exactly what we need. If the mass of our largest planet, Jupiter, were 1% greater or less than it actually is, our solar system would be destabilized, and again, we could not exist. To give us our four seasons and a humanly ideal temperature range, our Earth is tilted at precisely the correct 23.5 degrees. The point he's making is it's not chaos or chance. There's a design to all of this. 
Take another one, microbiologist Michael Denton. He says, however attractive the extrapolation, it does not necessarily follow that because a certain degree of evolution has been shown to occur, therefore any degree of evolution is possible. There's obviously an enormous difference between the evolution of a color change in a moth's wing and the evolution of an organ like the human brain. And the fruit flies of Hawaii, for example, are utterly trivial compared with the differences between a mouse and an elephant or an octopus and a bee. Again, that while there might be changes in the color of moth wings, type of evolution, big difference to get from a moth to a robin. Okay? Or I can think of my happy little rose bushes that I've been growing since I was in eighth grade. Well, guess what? Every now and then a bee does something, and what's supposed to be Mr. Kennedy, nice, white, pure rose, turns out to have some funny color in it. Some bee did it, and that one branch is still doing it. Why? I don't know. Mutation, yes, but it didn't change from a rose into a daisy. It's a rose bush. So can evolution occur among roses? Suppose so. We breed new roses all the time. We breed new fruit trees. But to get from a fruit tree to a lettuce is a big jump. Got one more else. Biochemist Lewis Thomas comments, I cannot make my peace with the randomness doctrine. I cannot abide the notion of purposelessness and blind chance in nature. It is absurd to say that a place like this place is absurd when it contains in front of our eyes so many millions of different forms of life, each one in its own way absolutely perfect. Now, when you think about that, we have that beautiful notion that when we look at our world, it is so logical, it is so designed and orderly. We're going through the change of seasons right now, and it's going to happen the same way as it always does. We're going from fall to winter to spring to summer, and it's not going to change. The revolution of the planets isn't going to change. How our body works really isn't going to change. Yes, there may be those who may be born with a genetic defect, possibly, but human beings aren't going to change. We look at our universe and we don't see at all chaos or chance. We don't. We don't see simply this little process, haphazard. We see design and purpose. There's an interesting story that one of the great atheist philosophers of our time, Anthony Flew, renounced atheism in the year 2004 at the age of 81. Now, it struck my interest because when I was in philosophy class at William and Mary, I had to read about Anthony Flew and his little book called The Existence of God, which he denied, a profound atheist. But he converted, at least to saying that he's not an atheist anymore. He said, it has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of the evolution of the first reproducing organism. Biologists' investigation of DNA has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved. I have been persuaded that it is simply out of the question that the first living matter evolved out of dead matter and then developed into an extraordinary complicated creature. 
It seems to me that the case for an Aristotelian God who has the characteristics of power and also intelligence is now much stronger than it ever was before. Now, pause for a moment. Aristotle, although a pagan, a Greek, living 333 years before our Lord, believed in one supreme being, God. And God was all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, infinite, and so on. And Aristotle proved, using reason, that there is a God, and he called God the unmoved mover, the one who created and who designed with intelligence. Thomas Aquinas would use Aristotle's arguments, baptize them, and give them proofs from reason for the existence of God. Anthony Flew went on concerning Dawkins, who we hear about a lot today, and also Charles Darwin. It seems to me that Richard Dawkins constantly overlooks the fact that Darwin himself, in the 14th chapter of The Origin of the Species, pointed out that his whole argument began with a being which already possessed reproductive powers. This is the creature of evolution of which a truly comprehensive theory of evolution must give some account. Darwin himself was well aware that he had not produced such an account. It now seems to me that the finding of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. So there's an atheist who now believes in the idea of intelligence design and a God who put intelligence into it. Now with that, our dear friend the Pope, okay, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, gave a series of lectures about creation. This book, in the beginning, has been reprinted by Ignatius Press, wonderful book of lectures. And so back in late 1980s, he gave these lectures, again as Cardinal Ratzinger. And he says the following. He says, only when we know that there is someone, capital S, who did not make a blind throw of the dice, and that we have not come from chance, but from freedom and love, can we then, in our unnecessariness, be grateful for this freedom and know with gratitude that it is really a gift to be a human being? And then he continues on. We must have the audacity to say that the great projects of the living creation are not the products of chance and error, nor are they the products of a selective process to which divine predicates can be attributed in illogical, unscientific, and even mythic fashion. The great projects of the living creation point to a creating reason, capital R, and show us a creating intelligence, capital I, and they do so more luminously and radiantly today than ever before. Thus we can say today with a new certitude and joyousness that the human being is indeed a divine project which only the creating intelligence was strong and great and audacious enough to conceive of. The human being is not a mistake, but something willed. He is the fruit of love. He can disclose in himself, in the bold project that he is, the language of the creating intelligence that speaks to him and that moves him to say, Yes, Father, you have willed me. Now, more recently, the Holy Father said this as Pope. Only where God is seen does life truly begin. Only when we meet the living God in Christ do we know what life is. We are not some casual and meaningless product of evolution. Each of us is the result of a thought of God. Each of us is willed. 
Each of us is loved. Each of us is necessary. Very important. It's not a matter of being a product of chance or chaos. We are willed by God. Very important. So, as Catholics, we can take the truths, real truths, of science, but also keep the truths of Genesis. And many great scientists have done that. So I will give you a few samples of those, some of whom you've probably heard of before. So if you take Albert Einstein, who was a Jew by birth, he wasn't a practicing Jew, but he was a Jew. I want to know how God created this world. I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts, the rest are details. Now, Einstein is living half a century after Charles Darwin. The human mind is not capable of grasping the universe. We are like a child entering a huge library. The walls are covered to the ceilings with books in different tongues. The child knows that someone must have written these books. It does not know who or how. It does not understand the languages in which they are written. But the child notes a definite plan in the arrangement of the books, a mysterious order which it does not comprehend, but only dimly suspects. My religion consists of a humble admiration of the illimitable superior spirit who reveals himself in the slight details we're able to perceive with our frail and feeble minds. That deeply emotional conviction of the presence of a superior reasoning power which is revealed in the incomprehensible universe, forms my idea of God. Go to another one. And this is John O'Keefe, NASA astronomer, died in the year 2000. We are, by astronomical standards, a pampered, cosseted, cherished group of creatures. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could never have come into existence. It is my view that these circumstances indicate the universe was created for man to live in. Warner von Braun, who was the great German scientist who sadly developed the V2 rockets during Hitler's reign for Nazi Germany, but then after the war came to our country and was really the proponent of the Saturn V rocket that used to launch everything from the Apollo, Gemini, and so on very devout man said, I find it is difficult to understand a scientist who does not acknowledge the presence of a superior rationality behind the existence of the universe as it is to comprehend a theologian who would deny the advances of science. And there's certainly no scientific reason why God cannot retain the same relevance in our modern world that he held before we began probing his creation with telescope, cyclotron, and space vehicles. And we could go on and on. I have a whole list of various scientists who've spoken about God. They believe in God. And many good scientists do believe in God because they realize science doesn't have all the answers. It takes a God. Moreover, that when one looks at the universe, it's not a matter of chaos and chance. It's not a matter of simple mutation. There are fundamental questions that can only be answered by the divine, supreme intelligence of God. But again, the key is that we keep the two together, faith as well as reason. And I look upon reason and the beauty of science as helping us to appreciate the greatness of God. 
And that's how we need to present it. But it is very sad that in our world that this side is taught like the gospel truth and poor God has been eliminated. It makes no sense. To me, that's very unscientific. If science is supposed to be based on knowledge, that seems to go against science for centuries. Part of the problem, quite frankly, 1858, when Charles Darwin wrote his book, many of the scientific community and much of the philosophy community did not believe in God anymore. It's the age of rationalism. They threw God out. They threw out the supernatural, threw out the miracles and so on. Also, this was right at the peak of the anti-authoritarian movement. So in 1848, 10 years earlier, most of the monarchies in Europe faced some kind of a revolution because there was this great idea of overthrowing any absolute power. How can we have absolutes? So just like we don't have absolute truths, we don't have absolute powers. And they attacked the church too. So how could we have absolute truths in a Bible? Throw that out. So this whole idea of chaos and chance is the product of the mid-1800s. That was the idea of philosophy. That was the idea of even government now. It was the idea of this kind of science, too. Sad to say. Now, with that in mind, we can move on. And we go on and see where does all of this take us. Now, before we go too much further, I do want to say, if you go to the Catechism on page 283, they do mention this very briefly. And it simply says, the question about the origins of the world and of man has been the object of many scientific studies which has splendidly enriched our knowledge of the age and dimensions of the cosmos, the development of life forms, and the appearance of man. These discoveries invite us to even greater admiration for the greatness of the Creator, prompting us to give him thanks for all his works and for the understanding and wisdom he gives to scholars and researchers. And it goes on and on. But the idea here again is that in paragraph 284. The great interest accorded to these studies is strongly stimulated by a question of another order, which goes beyond the proper domain of the natural sciences. It is not only a question of knowing when and how the universe arose physically, or when a man appeared, but rather of discovering the meaning of such an origin. Is the universe governed by chance, blind fate, anonymous necessity, or by a transcendent, intelligent, and good being called God. And if the world does come from God's wisdom and goodness, why is there evil? Where does it come from? Who is responsible for it? Is there any liberation from it? And so on. And that brings us to something now. That it's not simply saying, here we have science, and we have this very mechanistic process. Because if one really believes in that, then... What does that say about our morality? Because all of this, whatever side you take, and this side, I would say, are the truths of Genesis, which would be the dignity of the person, basic faith, truth. God gave us each a human dignity. We're made in God's image and likeness. And we could add to that the immortality of the soul, immortal life, and so on. But the dignity of the human person, no matter who we are, no matter what our age, what our race, and so on, the dignity of the person. Also, that life is sacred from conception until natural death. God gave life. 
And when parents have a child from that very first moment, DNA, God, we believe, gives the soul. That life is sacred. That's a person. And from that point all the way to natural death, that person is a sacred life. So in a sense, that's the goodness of science. DNA is a wonderful discovery showing us the uniqueness of who we are as a person and how God creates. Now, third, we would say that marriage is sacred, that God designed marriage between a man and a woman because they complement each other. They're meant to be one, and it is through them the human race does continue on. Now, that's not even just a matter of faith. That makes sense. If you don't have man and woman, how do you have life? But we'll get into that. Fourth, that a child has a right to a mom and a dad and to be raised in a family because it is the family that's the building block of society. And if a child is made in God's image and likeness, that child needs to have a masculine example as well as a feminine example. Hence, father, mother. Makes sense. A good child needs both to mature properly, normally, as a child. And then two, all people have a right to basic health care, to education, things of that nature, to help themselves. Six, that we care for the suffering and dying. That's part of our humanity, too. So these are some basic principles that we can derive from Genesis. Now, what are we going to derive from evolution if you take God out of it? Because you've just taken truth out. So if you're going to buy into evolution, get rid of Genesis, get ready. You're buying into a moral theory here. And what does that lead us to? Well, let's think about our friend Darwin here. So Darwin authored Origin of the Species in 1859. And 12 years later, he authored The Descent of Man, 1871. And this is a book that he put out after Origin of the Species. Some of the theories he purposely omitted from Origin of the Species because he didn't want that book rejected. But he puts it into The Descent of Man. Now, in this, he says... As many more individuals of each species are born than can possibly survive, and as consequently there's a frequently recurring struggle for existence, it follows that any being, if it vary, however, slightly in any manner profitable to itself under the complex and sometimes varying conditions of life, will have a better chance of surviving and thus be naturally selected. From the strong principle of inheritance, any selected variety will tend to propagate its new and modified form. So it is the survival of the fittest. Now, apply that to human beings. Darwin writes, With savages, the weakened body or mind are soon eliminated, and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the life of every one to the last moment. There is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands who, from a weak constitution, would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious 
to the race of man. It is surprising how soon a want of care or care wrongly directed leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed. What's Darwin saying? Get rid of the imbeciles. Get rid of those who are weak. Survival of the fittest. Natural selection. Goes on. If various checks do not prevent the reckless, the vicious, and otherwise inferior members of society from increasing at a quicker rate than the better class of men, the nation will retrograde, as has occurred too often in the history of the world. We must remember that progress is no invariable rule. So, Darwin was a proponent of eugenics. And in 1917, we have in one of our American high school textbooks, based on Darwin's theory of evolution, the following. The improvement of man. If the stock of domesticated, and this is, this is exactly out of the textbook, if the stock of domesticated animals can be improved, it is not unfair to ask if the health and vigor of the future generations of men and women on the earth might not be improved by applying them to the laws of selection. Eugenics. When people marry, there are certain things that the individual as well as the race should demand. The most important of these is freedom from germ diseases, which might be handed down to the offspring. Tuberculosis, that dread white plague, which is still responsible for almost one-seventh of all deaths. Epilepsy, the feeble-mindedness, or handicaps, which it is not only unfair but criminal to hand down to posterity. The science of being well-born is called eugenics. Then they used an example of the Jukes family, which had mental and moral defects passed on through inbreeding. Of 480 descendants of the originally genetically ill pair, 33 were sexually immoral, 24 confirmed drunkards, 3 epileptics, and 140 feeble-minded. Now, continues on. Parasitism and its cost to society. Hundreds of families such as those described above exist today, spreading disease, immorality, and crime to all parts of this country. The cost to society of such families is very severe. Just as certain animals or plants become parasitic on other plants or animals, these families have become parasitic on society. They not only do harm to others by corrupting, stealing, and spreading disease, but they are actually protected and cared for by the state out of public money. Largely for them, the poor house and the asylum exist. They take from society, but they give nothing in return. They're true parasites. The remedy. If such people were lower animals, we would probably kill them off to prevent them from spreading humanity. Humanity will not allow this, but we do have the remedy of separating the sexes in asylums or other places and in various ways of preventing intermarriage and the possibilities of perpetuating such a low and degenerate race. Remedies of this sort have been tried successfully in Europe and are now meeting with success in this country. Now, this book was called Civic Biology by George William Hunter, and this was the book that was used by William Scopes that he taught in 1925 at the infamous Scopes trial. So, we have here a problem morally. Believe in evolution without the truths of Genesis, and despite what some might 
say, you have chaos and chance, natural selection, selection of the fittest. No longer do you worry about the dignity of the human person because who is the fittest who deserves to live? That's what strict evolutionary theory of Charles Darwin teaches us. Who should we allow to live? Does everyone have dignity? Well, eliminate the retarded. Eliminate the ones with the Down syndrome. Eliminate those with the cystic fibrosis and so on. And is life sacred? No, life isn't. And is marriage sacred? Not necessarily. And we can go on and on. Well, it's interesting that who read Charles Darwin's book and who perpetuated it? Our dear friend Margaret Sanger. So Margaret Sanger, in her book, The Pivot of Civilization, talked about the need for what she called the Spartan-like, knuckled-down, hard-action methods that may be forced upon American society. And so what she spoke about is things like, five minutes, I have more than five minutes. So what she spoke about are things like forced sterilization, and she used the new intelligent quotient exam, the Binet-Simon test, the IQ test, to decide what should be done, and so on. So Margaret Sanger was a great promoter of Darwinian theory as far as morality goes. Another one occurred in Germany. And two professors, Hock and Binding, wrote the permission for the destruction of human life unworthy of life. And it looked at those who were the feeble. Who read that? Adolf Hitler. And we look at what happened, and we see it. Now, my dear friends, we could say, well, is this going too far? I don't think so, because you look at where we are today. Do we have abortion on demand? Absolutely. Do we now have abortion, not simply for so-called medical reasons, which really account for 2% of abortions in our country, but now we have for sex selection. We have the cases, and these are actual cases, where a mother had twins. She didn't want twins, so she aborted one. That was allowed. Or we have where a child is now diagnosed with some kind of a genetic disorder. Have you ever wondered why we have less Down syndrome children in our world today? Why the rates of cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs, and other diseases are going down in our country? Abortion, because we have genetic screening. And if you have genetic screening, you can decide who's going to live, who's going to die. And then two, we now have clinics that have decided that they will help you have a child. This is a wonderful clinic. I mean that very facetiously. It is in Los Angeles, go figure, the California, uh, land of fruits and nuts. And here we have the in vitro fertilization clinic, Tyler Medical Clinic. And they welcome you to their little website. They do in vitro fertilization, surrogacy, egg donors, gamete intrafallopian tube transfer, tubal ligation, reversal of fertility treatments and so on and all kinds of things here, but also they do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which means you can decide what kind of child you want. As best that they can, they will design a child for you. So they will look in the donors and if you want to have a child that comes from a very intelligent donor, maybe one that has characteristics of height or certain colors and so on, they will find that donor egg for you, designer babies. Now, have we heard of that before? 
Yes, Adolf Hitler tried that. He didn't have the genetics that we have. He didn't have the research capabilities, but they were trying to do that. The Waffen-SS actually had a, like, dormitory situation, and blonde-haired, blue-eyed women were impregnated by blonde-haired, blue-eyed men. They weren't married. It was just a production facility for the Aryan race. And did not Hitler also say that we should have some races eliminated? Does it still happen? Yes. Think of Rwanda in recent times. Think of Bosnia, Serbia. And then two, if we're going to just say about this idea who should live, the selection of the fittest, natural selection, and so on, then we have Dr. James Watson, who sadly is, well, I should say that he was credited with discovering DNA, partially, Crick Watson, but has also said that children should not be deemed alive until three days after birth so that you could do a genetic screen. You can see if they have any defects, and if they do, they can be eliminated. And we have Dr. Peter Singer says, well, push it to three months. So we'll wait three months until a child is born because we want to have our natural selection. We'll select who is going to live. And then two, when we think about it, if we look at evolution, all of these creatures are on the same status. If we came from apes, we're no better than an ape. If they came from a cow, they're no better than cows. We're all the same. In Genesis, we have the dignity of the person. In Darwin, we're all the same. So, if that's true, then that's why we have animals with more rights than human beings. I saw a bumper sticker that said, save the whale, and on the other side said, of the other side of the bumper was, I'm pro-choice. Says it all. The PETA people. The PETA people attack the research labs because they think the little bunnies have more rights than human beings do. Why test drugs on little bunnies? Bunnies are sacred, right? They have equal dignity to us, according to the PETA people. No, they don't. I'd rather have drugs tested on bunnies than upon human beings. But that's what some people think now. And the PETA people actually do violence towards humans to get their point across. And then we can go further, and we think of insurance companies now. How many insurance companies will say that if you have, if you're diagnosed, because now doctors will do the amniocentesis or some kind of prenatal exam, if the doctor says you're going to have a Down syndrome baby, when do the insurance companies say, we aren't paying for it? You're stuck. Because it's going to cost them $500,000 presently to have that child live. $500,000. It's all a matter of economics. So why should that person take those resources? Or if you have a person now who is in a vegetative state, notice vegetable, that's the medical terminology, persistent vegetative state. Why should we be paying for the care of that person? Euthanize them. Survival of the fittest. Natural selection. When we take God out of the equation, we're doomed. This is a theory, but has had an awful impact upon society. Now, I'm getting the old time limit treatment and so on, but one last point. You know, 1% of our pregnancies in America are in vitro. So just think. Technically, all of you, let's say, could have been from the same donor. We think about it. All of us. Wouldn't that be ironic? All of us. So you could have had a mommy or a daddy but then you could have had the donor sperm or the donor ovum, and bingo, we could all be related. We don't know that. 
And does the child not have a right to know who mom or dad is? There's now a society of people who are the products of in vitro fertilization. It's a support group because they don't know who one of their parents is, or maybe both. And now we have same-sex marriage, and they're manufacturing their children. Go figure that. Take God out of the equation, what happens to society? But nevertheless, survival of the fittest. Now it's interesting, wrap up here. Did any of you ever see the movie Judgment at Nuremberg? Well, if you did, it was based, it was, I think, 1963, Spencer Tracy, Maximilian Schell, and Marlena Dietrich, and so on. Well, Spencer Tracy plays one of the judges, the American judges on this tribunal that is trying for Nazi criminals. And these were four Nazi judges, and they're being tried for sterilization of some individuals or because an Aryan was having an affair with a Jewish person and so on. And it's very interesting because Maximilian Schell plays the German defense lawyer. And you know what? He read out of that book, that biology book in America. And he said, how can you judge these judges when you are teaching the same thing in America? Isn't that interesting? Same theory. So my brothers and sisters, it's not a science lecture, but I'm going to tell you right now, especially if you're teaching evolution, it's not simply science. You buy into a moral system. You take God out of the science, and you're going to end up with real chaos. And that's what this is. And chaos eventually leads to destruction. That's it. I'm done. Goodbye. <laughs>